Good morning, everyone. All right, well, please turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to put my Bible there. I do have my notes here. There's just not enough room on this makeshift pulpit today. Uh, We've been working our way through uh, the standards of godliness uh, that the Apostle Paul has outlined for the different ages and genders in the church, standards that are in no way expected to be followed in order to experience salvation. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Human works have no place whatsoever in justifying ourselves before God. Justification is solely by the work of God and it's to his glory alone. Next week is Reformation Sunday and we will hear those points again. However, justification always leads to sanctification. A regenerated heart always leads to a regenerated life. And so godliness, living a life that's pleasing to God, is the fruit that evidences the saving grace of God. And as we've seen in our study, believers are not called to work to develop this fruit of godliness in our own strength, for it's by God's grace at work in the believer's life that enables them to do so. We see this clearly when we read in verse 12 that it's God's grace that is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now all the standards that we've looked at in chapter 2 are depictions of what it means to be in Christ. Believers have been saved by Christ, saved into Christ, are now called to live for Christ as we are conformed to Christ. And all of this is by the grace of God. Well, this morning we come to the final standard of godliness that Paul outlines, and that is for slaves in verses 9 and 10. And so with your Bibles open, let's read those verses together. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So godliness is of tremendous importance. Our focus this morning is on the standard of godliness for slaves. That is literally what the word translated as bondservant means. It means slave. Now, while the previous standards throughout chapter 2 have been differentiated by age and gender, there's no distinguishing marks here because Christian slaves could have been young or old, could have been male or female. The commands here were for any slave who had been brought to faith in Christ through the saving grace of God. And while we can rightly apply these commands to Christians in in the modern workplace, and we're going to do so today, uh, we don't want to get there too quickly without recognising the context uh, that Paul was speaking into. So before we start looking into what this section is saying, uh, perhaps it would be helpful to address, in short, uh, the issue of slavery. Because what do we think when we hear the word slavery? Does it, does it recall immediately images uh, of the American Civil War? Does the tune Amazing Grace start playing in our heads? Those words written by the ex-slave trader John Newton. 
Now, slavery is an important topic for Christians because it's spoken of a great deal within the scriptures. And it's vital for us to have some understanding on what the Bible says about slavery because this topic is often used by people trying to bring down the authority of scripture and bring down Christian ethics and teachings. One such example was a couple of years ago now, back in 2013, when then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd appeared on the ABC show Q&A. He was asked why, as someone who claimed to be a Christian, why he had changed his mind into supporting same-sex marriage, something clearly against what the Bible taught. And he responded, and I quote, Well, if I was going to have that view, mate, the Bible also says that slavery is a natural condition, because St. Paul said in the New Testament, slaves be obedient to your masters, and therefore we should have all fought for the Confederacy in the US Civil War. End quote. So was Kevin right about that? Does the Bible teach that slavery is a natural condition? Absolutely not. Kevin was following the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who said this, For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Those are the words of Aristotle. The Bible, on the other hand, expresses uh, clearly the teaching that every single human being is born in the image and likeness of God and as a result are worthy of dignity and respect. And even though that image and likeness has been marred by sin, nevertheless, every single person, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of race, is a precious creation of God. One of the most important things that we must recognise about slavery is that there is a big difference between ancient slavery and modern slavery of the last several hundred years. And the biggest difference is related to race. The modern slave trade was dominated by racial prejudice, a view that certain races, particularly identified by the colour of their skin, are of less value than others, and they can be captured, kidnapped and forced to work for their superiors. Well, the Bible expressly condemns this kind of slavery when we read in Exodus 21 verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in his possession, in possession of him shall be put to death. Well, that's pretty clear. Well, to get a better perspective of what slavery looked like in biblical times, let me share some words from a New Testament scholar, Murray Harris, from his book, Slave of Christ. Let me quote. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom and their natural inferiority was not assumed. End quote. Now, this is in no way to advocate that ancient slavery was somehow a wonderful experience for all involved. That's not what I'm saying here. 
simply highlighting some important differences in the past and the more recent present. But moreover, the importance in Scripture is not on the social structures that a person finds themselves within, but upon the spiritual condition of a person's heart before the Lord. Whether you are a slave or a free man, what matters is your standing before God. In Ezekiel 18 verse 4, God reminds the people through the prophet that the soul who sins shall die. Paul makes clear in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What is most important in life is recognising your condition before God. Because as Romans 3.23 states, all have sinned. So are you a rebel or have you been reconciled? Are you persisting in sin or have you sought the Lord's mercy to forgive your sin? That is the question. Whether a person is a slave to an earthly master or not, they will still answer to the heavenly master. And the struggle of their earthly servitude will be nothing compared to eternity in hell if they have not repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now this helps us understand why the Bible neither condoned or condemned uh, the ancient slavery of that time. Because Christianity is about the gospel. Murray Harris again highlights several reasons why the biblical writers did not try to bring about social reform. Just a couple of points here. There was already a legal process for emancipation. It was already there. Uh, They'd seen slave revolts that had previously failed. Uh, they could also be have, have been accused of using religion as a front for social revolution. But ultimately, we must understand that Christianity is concerned with spiritual transformation of lives, not social structures. Changed lives will change society, but the church is to be focused on the proclamation of the gospel. And who else but the church is going to proclaim the gospel? It was the gospel that led men like William Wilberforce to work towards the abolition of slavery towards the end of the 1700s in England. And it's the gospel that leads many individuals to effect positive change in society. However, while the teaching of scriptures ultimately showed that slavery was not a structure that should be encouraged, the scripture also shows us the necessity of gospel proclamation. If the biblical writers chose not to direct the church of the first century into focusing its attention on social change, then neither should we read that into our mandate as the church in modern times. But in thinking about the concept of slavery, it's interesting that the New Testament writers drew a distinct connection between social slavery and spiritual slavery. How did Paul introduce the letter to Titus back in chapter 1 verse 1? Paul, a slave of God. Now the ESV has it rendered servant, but the word there is literally slave. He's a slave of God. You see, human beings are not autonomous. We are creatures, we are creations, and we're always under the control of something bigger than ourselves, either for good or for ill. By the grace of God, Christians have been redeemed out of slavery to sin and are now slaves to righteousness. 
In Matthew 11, 29, Jesus called the people saying, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, the yoke was a special harness placed on beasts of burden, so they could pull a plow or a wagon. They were to serve the master. Jesus uses that imagery to call people to come under his control, to submit to him, for in doing so, they would find true rest. To confess Jesus as Lord is to submit to him as our master, and only in this is their true freedom. Ultimately then, for slaves, just as much as for free men, it is the relationship with Christ uh, that makes all the difference. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encouraged slaves to seek freedom if the opportunity presented itself. But his bigger concern was that they be faithful to Christ whatever situation they found themselves in. He says a similar thing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, Paul says this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Slaves who have been graciously redeemed from slavery to sin have the great assurance that they will receive the inheritance of eternal life under God's kingdom rule. So they can serve in whatever circumstances, knowing that their service is truly to the Lord. So with all that being said, let's look specifically now at Paul's words in Titus 2. And he begins in verse 9 saying this, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And here is the principle delivered. And what is the principle that Titus is expected to teach? It is that compliance is a mark of godliness. In our modern business lingo, which speaks of compliance in the workplace, it seems an appropriate way to understand Paul's call for submission. The word submissive means to arrange under or to make oneself subordinate to the authority of a higher power. In that sense, Christians are called to be compliant to workplace rules and regulations and to the employers whom they might find themselves working for. Now, we've come across the notion of submission before when we studied Paul's teaching in verse 5 for women to be submissive to their own husbands. However, as we mentioned then, uh, and so now again, Uh, Although the same verb is used in verse 5 regarding a woman's submission to her husband, there's a difference in its makeup, which shows that the wife is called to voluntarily submit herself to her husband, but the slave is called to direct obedience. Now, just as slaves had no option but to obey their masters, so too are employees called to submit themselves or to comply to the direction and standards of the companies that they're employed by. Now, if that was what Paul expected for Christian slaves who had no choice about which earthly master they served, how much more so then should Christians today, in getting to apply for work, exhibit the same compliance to our employers? 
If we have freely chosen to be part of a company, then how much more so should we freely fulfill all our duties to that company? Now what's more, there is no designation here as to whether the masters were Christian. Frequently it would have been otherwise. But Paul is saying it matters not who your master is. Christians are at all times to render faithful service to their bosses. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 19, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, Peter emphasises submission regardless of the nature of the master, because in doing so, the servant would be reflective of Christ. He continues in verses 20 to 21. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, that's the unjust masters, but what about just masters? In, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul also has words about serving Christian masters. In verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And so it's a clear warning that Christian servants should not take advantage of the goodwill of their faithful Christian masters. So regardless of the nature of our employer, while we are in their employ, as Christians, we are to be in complete compliance. That's what it means that in everything to be submissive to their masters, in everything. However, we we also can't take these words out of the context of the whole Bible that emphasises that that while we may have an earthly master, our responsibility is ultimately to our heavenly master. When brought before the Jewish council, the Apostle Peter declared in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And so we must understand the term in everything here in Titus 2.9, To be something like, in everything, without sinning. Now, to follow through on such a command may end up costing us a lot. Uh, To obey God rather than man may lead to difficulty in the workplace, may lead us to having to quit our jobs or being fired from our jobs, may even cost us our lives one day. But God calls us to obey him above all, regardless of the earthly consequences. Just think of the example of Joseph in Genesis 39. Here was a young man who had been treated unfairly and yet he faithfully served God. He'd been sold into slavery in Egypt by his jealous brothers and he wound up working for Potiphar, uh, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And he faithfully served Potiphar. And through the blessing of the Lord, Potiphar placed Joseph in charge of all that he had. But we read that Potiphar's wife became infatuated with the handsome young man and desired for him to come to bed with her. But Joseph replied in Genesis 39 verses 8 and 9, he said this, Behold, 
Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, we know the story, don't we? She kept advancing and he kept retreating. And then one day she pounced and he just ran, leaving behind a piece of clothing, which she then showed to her husband and lied that Joseph was the one who tried to seduce her. And then Joseph, for his trouble, ends up getting thrown into prison. Of course, God was sovereign over all those events, wasn't he? And he used them for his purposes and glory. Now, we may see the blessings of taking a stand for Christ in this life, or we may not. In the great roll call of faith in Hebrews 11, of which Joseph is mentioned, we also recognize that there were others who by faith were stoned, were sawn in two, were killed with the sword, who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These were real people. This is not just make-believe stuff here. These were real Christians. They were not rewarded in this life, but they remained faithful until the end, persevering because of God's enabling grace, and they received the reward of eternal life. Now, in Titus 2.9, it is the principle of compliance that is called for for every Christian serving in the workforce. And in the context of chapter 2, where Paul begins telling Titus to teach the churches what accords with sound doctrine, we see clearly that compliance is a mark of godliness. It is godliness that accords with sound doctrine. Because sound teaching must lead to sound living. As Christians, we please God by showing obedience to those whom we are employed by. It shows a deeper desire to honour the Lord. uh, To honour the Lord whom we know is the one who sovereignly established all the authorities in all spheres. It also shows that we understand that in Christ Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so we willingly serve the Lord in whatever sphere of life he has placed us in for his glory. While Paul continues in verse 9, as we see the particulars developed. What does it look like for Christians to submit to earthly masters in everything? What does it mean for employees to be compliant? Well, Paul lists four aspects. Firstly, compliance means being commendable. Paul says of Christian slaves, they are to be well-pleasing. It was about doing their work in a way that brought satisfaction to their masters. It was about striving to work in a manner that was commendable, worthy, admirable, praiseworthy, regardless of whether praise actually came from their master. But the focus is on faithfully serving, not on the reward that might come. Moreover, there's there's no aspect here of what we might call sucking up. I quoted earlier from Colossians 3.22, where Paul said this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So service is not meant to be by way of eye service, that is only doing right when the master is watching. 
It's about seeking to do commendable work, full stop. It comes from a heart attitude that recognises one's service to their master is ultimately about their service to the Lord. It's not then simply an outward compliance, but an inward disposition of faithfulness. Because even if the master cannot see everything, God can. And here we recognise that everywhere else in the New Testament, the word translated as well-pleasing or acceptable is used in connection to pleasing God. Romans 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That is well-pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13, 21, the writer closes with a benediction asking that God would equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whatever your employment, while your first thought should be to please your boss, ultimately your eyes should be far higher than this. As Christians, our service is to the Lord God Almighty. And we please him by being commendable employees. Secondly, compliance means being courteous. Paul says Christian slaves are not to be argumentative. Paul's already used this word in Titus 1 verse 9, speaking about the need for elders to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. That is, those who speak against, oppose or argue against sound biblical teaching. Another example, in, in Romans 10.21, Paul writes, But of Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is, an argumentative people. In the context of Titus 2, Paul is calling for Christian slaves not to display such opposition to their masters. For them, it, it might have meant refusing to talk back to their masters or refusing to slander their masters behind their backs. If their masters were non-Christians or if they were harsh, then there would have been a grave temptation for Christian slaves to be contentious and quarrelsome, either actively to their master's face or passively speaking negatively about their masters to other people. Paul was saying that is not what it means to be submissive. In fact, that's the direct opposite of being submissive. So what might that look like today? Well, in the workplace, there may be far more freedom, even encouragement from employers uh, to offer uh, for employees to offer their opinion to their employers. Now, does sharing an opinion constitute being argumentative? Well, certainly doesn't have to be. And an opinion can be shared respectfully, can be shared courteously. But where compliance is shown and submission is shown is that if that opinion is not taken on board, then the employee respects the decision of the employer. But how many of us have failed in that? How many of us have taken the route well-travelled and resorted to anger and frustration or to speaking badly about the boss or the company? I won't ask you to raise your hands. Have you taken that further as well and, and spoken to others outside of your work, sharing all the things that your company is doing, which in your opinion they shouldn't be doing? Well, regardless of whether you think the company is right or wrong, what Paul says here in Titus 2.9 is that it's wrong for Christian employees to be acting in such a manner. 
See, unlike slaves of the first century, we actually volunteer to apply for work. And so if there is a conscientious objection to the way a company operates, then we have no obligation to remain in their employ. So for the sake of integrity and our witness to the gospel, if if all we're being is argumentative, then even if it hurts financially for a time, it would seem better to respectfully quit and find work elsewhere. Now, if there's genuine wrongful action, then we should certainly follow through on whatever dispute processes are outlined in the company policy or, or other appropriate legal steps if the company doesn't follow through on those things. However, there is a manner in which Christians are to do things that seeks to honour both our employer and above all, God. Remember Paul's words in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to be courteous. We are not to be argumentative and difficult staff members. Acting with courtesy is pleasing to God. Thirdly, compliance means being clean-handed. Paul writes in verse 10, Christian slaves are to be not pilfering. The word here means not putting aside for themselves. Like the example of Joseph from the Old Testament, many slaves in the New Testament era were often put in charge of households or businesses, and so they had great opportunity to misappropriate resources from their masters if they so desired. So it's a call for honesty, for purity, for being clean-handed and innocent. They were not to try and gain advantage for themselves by stealing things from those they answered to. In Acts chapter 5, we are shown a vivid example of God's thoughts about pilfering. In Acts 5 verses 1 to 3, we read, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? It was not that Ananias and Sapphira did the wrong thing in in only giving a part of the money of the sale of their, their property to the apostles, but they erred in that they gave a part but they claimed that they had given the whole thing. They had pilfered. They had kept back, put aside some of it for themselves. And we know that did not end well for them. For Peter, by the discernment of the Holy Spirit, saw straight through their deception and and prophesied their deaths, prophecy that was fulfilled immediately. There could not be a much clearer demonstration of the need for innocence and honesty. The repercussion for Ananias and Sapphira was extreme because the event occurred while the New Testament church was still in its fledgling stages and, and God was establishing his standards very clearly. However, let's not forget the words of Galatians chapter 6. Where Paul says in verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So if we act in ways that are contrary to the calling we've received, 
we're simply deceiving ourselves that there will be no consequences. As Christians in the workplace, then, we should be clean-handed. Are we clean-handed in the use of our equipment at work, making sure that we're not helping ourselves to office supplies or using the phone for private phone calls or absolutely in the sense of embezzling money from the company? Are we clean-handed in the use of our time at work? It's not actually our time. We are paid for that. We get paid for our time. But are we using that time appropriately and diligently to serve the company as best as we can? Or are we constantly distracted or constantly wasting our employer's time? We should strive for godliness. Remembering the words of 1 Peter 4, 14 to 15, where Peter said, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Fourthly then, compliance means being committed. Paul says that Christian slaves, in contrast to pilfering, should be showing all good faith. Now, this is not a comment about the Christian faith, but faithfulness on behalf of the Christian slave. It's about being loyal reliable, committed to their master. It is to display within oneself the characteristic of faithfulness. But note also the other words that are connected with that. It's not simply some faithfulness, but all faithfulness. It's a call for total commitment. And further to this, it's not simply all faithfulness, but all good faithfulness. A goodness that is intrinsically good, that is always good, not just when someone is looking and regardless of whether others view it as being good or not. It's a call for total commitment carried out in a manner that confers to God's standards of goodness. For the Christian slave, that meant that they could not be faithful in some areas of their service only. The application of Christian workers is exactly the same. If you sign a contract, it means you are fully committed to carrying out every aspect that is required of you. It means you're not going to settle for a second-rate performance, but will seek to honour your employer with the best job that you can do because you know that your loyalty and commitment to them is a reflection of your loyalty and commitment to God. And then in seeking to please the Lord you will do your best to please your employer. Well, just as God calls us to serve him with our whole selves, he expects the same of us when we are employed by another. To do so is to bring glory to God. So we've seen the particulars developed in that compliance means being commendable, courteous, clean-handed and committed. Paul then brings out clearly the reason for submission. So at the end of verse 10, we see the purpose defined. What is the purpose of compliance? Is that it gives credibility to the gospel. Paul finishes his comments for Christian slaves by saying that the reason for his command is so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. In submitting to their earthly masters, the Christian slaves were not simply commending themselves to their masters, but commending the gospel, the doctrine of God our Saviour. They were making the gospel attractive. 
Their lives were to be a visual testimony to the world of the transforming power of God, of the sanctifying power of the gospel in in bringing rebellious sinners into relationship with God and into a life of godliness through the work of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. By submitting to their masters, they were demonstrating a willingness to come under the authority of a higher power, which showed clearly that they had submitted to the Lord God, the highest power, who is the Saviour. Their lives were no longer lived in slavery to sin, but in slavery to righteous, righteousness, and all by the grace of God, regenerating their hearts and enabling them to repent, to trust in Christ and to live for him. To say that the slaves adorned the doctrine of God, our Saviour, no way implies that they relied solely on their actions to display the gospel and that they, they refrained from doing any proclamation. Paul is clear in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This was the answer uh, to several questions he posed earlier in verse 14. Paul said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? For sinners to be saved, they must hear the word about Christ. They must believe the word about Christ. They must call on Christ in faith. So Paul is in no way diminishing the necessity uh, when he, uh, the necessity of preaching when he says that the purpose of godliness for Christian slaves is to adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. His point is simply this. If a person's manner does not match their message, it places a stumbling block before others in believing the message. Just the same for Christians in the workplace, every effort must be made to proclaim the gospel, but these efforts will be hindered if that person who is preaching the gospel in the workplace does not show compliance to the workplace, is not commendable, courteous, clean-handed and committed. As we've seen through our study of Titus 2, Paul lists several purposes uh, for calling Christians to godliness. Now aside from verse 10, we read in verse 5 that Paul called the younger women to godliness that the word of God may not be reviled. And then in verse 8, he said to Titus, and by implication, the younger women as well, sorry, the younger men as well, uh, that they were to strive for godliness. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Godliness matters. It really matters. It matters because Christians have been saved from God's wrath by God's grace through faith in Christ. And to strive for godliness is part and parcel of being in Christ. Now, if pleasing God is not a great concern of ours, then we really need to consider if we are actually in Christ. Have we been redeemed? Have we been filled with the Holy Spirit? A Christian is one who knows that they have been saved by God's grace alone, and that by His grace He enables us to live for Him, being conformed each and every day, more to the image and likeness of his son. If we're not interested in that, we need to ask the question of ourselves. But further to our own desire to please God, Christians have a great desire to proclaim the gospel to others and they will do everything they can to ensure the message is heard without distortion. 
Godliness then has an evangelistic purpose. Now to illustrate this, let me just share with you the story of Herb and Ruth Klingen. They were missionaries uh, who were interned during World War II in a Japanese prison camp located in the Philippines. And for all intents and purposes, they became slaves. And the master of the camp, the camp commandant, whose name was Kanishi, was a despicable man who treated the captives in his camp with such disdain, torturing, murdering, starving many to death. Now, years after the war, Herb and Ruth learned that Kanishi had been discovered by authorities working as a groundskeeper at a golf course in Manila. And they wrote of this experience, saying that Kanishi was, and I quote, Kanishi was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. Before his execution, he professed, professed conversion to Christianity, saying he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted. The gospel is to be both preached and lived. And as it is lived, so its beauty is displayed to all. And really, that can summarise all that we've seen throughout our study on the standards of godliness over the past couple of months. The gospel is to be both preached and lived. To be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be graciously brought into Christ through faith, brought into the family of God and enabled by God's grace to live as a member of his family. By God's grace, he has revealed to us what it means to live as his children. He's revealed to us the way he has divinely designed things for our good and for his glory. Now, Paul has laid out the different facets for what godliness looks like for different groups of people in the church and indeed for today any Christian in the employ of someone else. In following the Spirit-inspired Word, we show our willingness to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to allow Him to guide our lives, to set the standard and to strengthen us in our pursuit of godliness, our devotion to pleasing God with all of our being. The way we live Our lives, both as individuals and as a church, corporately, will have an impact on the world around us. You see, God works through means. And our spirit-filled lives are to serve as a testimony of what he has done for us. The way we serve one another, the way we care for one another, the way we love one another. The book of Titus is a great reminder that sound doctrine and sound living go hand in hand. Sinners need to hear the gospel preached. They need to hear that salvation is only found through repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you have not submitted to Jesus Christ, I plead with you to know that only in becoming a slave of Christ will you find true freedom. Only in humbling yourself before him will you be saved out of slavery to sin and rescued from the righteous judgment of God that awaits you. But for Christians, the delivery of that message is not our only concern. We must also be concerned with the depiction of that message. If we are proclaiming a message of the transforming, saving power of Christ, 
then it will be hindered if our lives are not reflective of the transforming grace of God. As I've stated many times throughout this series, the standards that Paul lays out for the church by the guidance of the Holy Spirit are truly countercultural. Even in the church today, many have a hard time hearing these words. Yet we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So then, as those who are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who inspired the written word, may we, by God's continued grace, strive to please him, following his commands and obedience to Christ, knowing that his words are truth and life, not only for us, but for all who would taste the pure spiritual milk of God's word and know that he is good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the things that we have learned today from your word. We uh, recognise the importance of gospel proclamation. We recognise uh, that through the, the fact that the biblical writers were not seeking to bring about social change but spiritual change. And today, as we've seen Paul's Standards of godliness for Christian slaves, we're recognising that the importance of living for Christ no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Father, we pray that you would help each of us, uh, many of us who are, who are in, the, in the workplace, we pray that you would give us strength by your grace, enable us to be honouring to you through the way we honour our employers. Father, through the testimony of our lives and through the testimony of our words, may your gospel be made attractive and may you work through that to convict people uh, by your spirit, enabling them to come to trust in Christ as well. Father, we thank you for all that we've learned uh, throughout uh, our time here in the, the first half of Titus 2. Thank you for the importance of godliness that we've been reminded of. We recognise that each of us uh, have a part to play in that. We thank you uh, that the same call goes out to each one of us. Having been graciously saved by Christ, we are now by your grace called to live for Christ. We thank you for revealing for us your divine design and we pray that you would help us to faithfully follow you. Pray that you would Uh, by your spirit enable us as a congregation to be tremendous witness for you in this community pray the gospel would go out without any distortion in your son's precious name we pray amen